VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome into the All Ball Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and uh, oh yeah, by the way, you can listen to the Gottlieb Show and do exactly the same. Coming up, Grant Hill. Uh, I sat down with Grant Hill. Um, I we talked injuries and Kawhi Leonard and uh, what it's like to get inducted in the Hall of Fame, but also kind of does he harbor any anger, kind of at his body or at doctors for not being able to maybe fulfill his destiny as one of the all-time great players, although, like, now you're a Hall of Famer, so you're one of the all-time great players. It's a really hard one. But also, I think you'll be interested to hear what he says about Kawhi Leonard and how he believes Kawhi Leonard should battle through these injuries. Speaking of Hall of Famers, Ray Allen eventually will be a Hall of Famer. Um, Going to talk to him about his iconic shot in Game 6 of the NBA Finals with LeBron. Also talk to him about his time with the Boston Celtics and why, what it was like when they first got together, what it was like to play with those guys, why it didn't end well, why those guys don't like him now, why he didn't, he no-showed, obviously, for Paul Pierce's retirement, Jersey retirement ceremony. And I also am going to ask him the question that uh, we, we kind of have to ask, which is, hey, dude, you played against Jordan, you played with LeBron, pick one. I know they're different positions, but pick one. And I think you'll be interested to hear his answer. I've gotten a chance to know our next guest uh, in working with him, and being in the same location uh, as him in, in in doing some of the same jobs. Obviously, he just got done calling a national championship game for 
uh, for Turner Sports. He's a seven-time NBA All-Star. He's first-time All-NBA, first-team All-NBA in 1997. He was All-NBA four other times. He was the Rookie of the Year. And, of course, remember, a two-time national champion, and now he's a Hall of Famer. He's Grant Hill. He joins us on the Doug Gottlieb Show. Grant, uh, where were you when you found out you are in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> Doug, I was actually, it was, the, it was the Wednesday before the Final Four, and it was my, my kid's spring break. So we were in the Bahamas, <laughs> and um, we were getting ready to fly back to Florida, and then I was going to fly on to San Antonio. And uh, I got the call um, <laughs> sitting poolside from uh, John DeLiva from the Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, so I was I was relaxed and working on my tan when I got the call. Okay, so I mean, the the, the they didn't ever they didn't make you wait, nor should they have. There wasn't like a lot of consternation. Obviously, you're chilling poolside, getting ready to call a national championship game. Life is good. I mean, in all honesty, was there ever any thought, any doubt? Was there ever any any worry that it might not happen this year? Yeah, no, there was a lot of worry. Um, you know, I think. When they changed the rule this past year to – it used to be you had to be five years removed from playing, and they changed it to four years. And so, you know, I knew then that Ray Allen – I knew that Jason, or excuse, Ray, Ray Allen and Steve Nash then would become eligible for the Hall of Fame. Uh, of course, Jason and I retired at the same time five years ago. So, yeah, I mean, there was some um, – you know, maybe some concern that, okay, well, maybe it, it won't happen. I, I figured those three were a lock, and, you know, would they take four of us? Um, so, yeah, I, I, mean, I was, you know, I wasn't sort of automatically assuming that. And, um, you know, I was concerned. And, um, you know, so when he called, I, I really honestly had no idea which way it would go. What's that feeling like? You know, nothing prepares you for for that call, Doug. I mean, I mean, you you, you know, I mean, you're you, you were a ball player, and, 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 you know, played in college, and you know, when you're a kid, you're not thinking about the Hall of Fame. And even as you continue to sort of uh, ascend and, and and move up to different levels, even as a pro, I'm not thinking about the Hall of Fame. You know, I'm thinking about you know trying to establish myself, trying to do well individually, trying to do well as a team, uh, whatever those personal, individual, and collective goals are, you're not really thinking about, you know, the idea of, of, of making it into the hall, and, and maybe not until the end, you know, when, you're, when your career is over, and you start to look ahead and, you know, sort of what's next. That's, that's you know, if you're, if you're fortunate to sort of be in that conversation, um, you know, you wonder, hey, did I, did I do enough? You know, with, you know, my four years in college and then my six, seven years of really good NBA, uh, will people remember that, or will they just sort of see the injuries and sort of what happened at the end? Um, so yeah, I mean those were sort of sort of internal thoughts that I had over the course of the last five years, and you know, lo and behold, um, I was voted in. So um, very, very, very excited, very fortunate. Um, do you does this make up for what could have been? Because I mean, look, man, you were on a trajectory as one of the all-time great college players, to be one of the all-time great pros. And obviously injuries just ravaged your career, like right in the prime of your career. Injuries, you know, stole some of the best years of your basketball playing career. Does this make up for that? 
You know, it, it, it lessens the blow. <laughs> um, you know, I think if, if I'm being honest, I mean, it's weird. So when I was going through all of that, when I was going through my injuries, when I was, you know, unsure if I'd get back, you know, it, it's a fight. I mean, you're fighting to get back. You're fighting to, to, to you know, to resume your career. And then once you get back, you're fighting to, to stay on. You're, you know, you're getting older, you're, you're, you know, you're in your late 30s or mid-30s or whatever, and, and, and so every day is a fight. And, and you really don't look back. You don't look back. Um, you're looking forward, you know, and what can I do to stay? Uh, what can I do to continue to add value to this team? You know, what can I do to compete against people that are almost half my age? And so once it's all over, you know, and then you can sort of sit back and reflect. And, and so once I've sort of, you know, retired in 2013, and now you sort of look at your, your, your complete body of work and, you're, you know, yeah, you know, you start to, at that point, I, I got, I, you know, when I retired, I got really sort of um, frustrated maybe or, or disappointed with what could have been. And, bitter? Uh, I mean, is, 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 is bitter a word that, that, I mean, were you were you ever bitter towards the game or bitter towards your body or what? What's what's the actual emotion in, you know, like, look, I, 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 obviously much lower level, right? My body never let me down. My brain did. I got to where I couldn't shoot in college. It always limited me when I played overseas. I couldn't make in the NBA because I couldn't, I couldn't get my mentally enough over a shot. And by the time I did, you know, broadcasting just happened, right? right. I just, I wonder what that's like for you, though. I mean, here you were, you're averaging like 25, 26 game, first team all NBA, and all of a sudden the injuries just, it took away like, 28, 29, 30, like right when you're at your best, right when you're at your peak and, um, you know, in like the best spot for you. I just, I have you, do you, I think every, I, th- I still think every athlete lives with some, I'm sure Michael Jordan's probably like, man, I should have played those other two years that I played. I would have won eight titles, right? Even the best. I'm just wondering if there, if a bitterness was ever an accurate word. You know, I, I think I suppressed a lot of those feelings and emotions when I was going through it. And, you know, you know, you know, as an athlete, you're just always next play, next play. So when I was going through my Orlando years and I was missing a significant amount of time, you know, I didn't really deal with that. And I think I probably dealt with it more once I retired. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, bitter. I mean, I don't know if that's the right word. Definitely disappointed, um, you know, feeling like um, – and this is what's crazy. <laughs> we had the time we could really dive into it. We can we can dive in. We're not going anywhere. Like all of this could have been avoided. Like that's the thing that is so disheartening in all of this is that you know it's not like you know Bill Walton who you know I've talked to Bill and Bill's been uh, believe it or not a good friend through my injuries and my ordeal and obviously he dealt with a lot. But you know Bill had problems from the time he could you know first start playing. And high school, and through college, he had issues with his feet that played out throughout his entire career. I never had issues with my feet. I never had injuries or anything. And then I, you know, something was sort of, and not to bring, you know, any sort of negative <laughs> negativity into this conversation, but it was mismanaged. And I, I wholeheartedly believe that this whole thing could have been avoided. And And so when you look at it through that lens, you're like, wow, like I, I did. I missed out on, you know, on some, some great times. I was at a point in my career, you know, I was six years in in the NBA, and the game was really easy. And I, I just, I had really kind of figured it out. I, I knew 
you know, I just knew how to dominate a game. I knew how to leave an impact on the game in a number of different ways. And I was, how old was I? 20, 27. Yep. And I had a window of the next four or five years where as good as I was, I felt like, okay, like I was on my way. Like I was even ready to take another step. I thought my last year in Detroit, I took a big step. And, you know, and, and that's, that's what's disappointing. It's like I almost feel like, to get back to your initial question, like it was just incomplete. And that's something that, you know, will probably stick with me for the rest of my life. Well, listen, um, listen there, there's, there's, okay, so Kawhi is kind of, I mean, like, look, it's not your feet, you know, and, and, and GMs have always told me, like, feet, hips, back, those are a lot harder in many ways than knees, right? Like, knees, have, people have been able to overcome knee injuries, like when feet or ankles, when those joints become problematic, that's when, so you know, um, but there is a little bit of that with Kawhi, right? Kawhi is coming into the prime of his career, and he keeps saying, my body's not right, and the Spurs people are... Like, what is, if there's one thing you could go back decision-wise, you said this could have been avoided. If there's one thing you could go back, and because you're reasonable and, and changed, that would have changed the course of history with your body, what would have been? I would have listened to my body. And I would have trusted my instincts. You know, I had a veteran early in my career, Otis Thorpe. You know, two-time All-Star, played at Houston, was sure. on that championship team, I think, in 1994. And I remember he used to tell me, sort of as this old veteran who was imparting wisdom, he'd say, listen to your body. Your body talks to you, and you just got to know how to listen to it. And I think through all that I went through, through all this, this stuff with my ankles, my body was telling me, but I was sort of trusting the expertise of others. And I also think it was a different time, and, and you know, not, not, not trying to <laughs> age you, Doug, but, you know, you, you kind of close to me in age, so you recall that back then it was a badge of honor to play all your games. Like you, yeah. you played through pain. Like you play, like nowadays, um, you know, rest and recovery uh, are important, and and I think practice is not as hard. And, and some of the older guys from from my generation, we look down upon that, but I actually think it's a good thing, and and I and I think in part because of what I went through, and and so it was just you play, you play, you play until you can't play. And I did that, and, and that caused me my initial injury, which then, you know, caused some other issues that, you know, basically four years of, you know, of just not being able to play, um, you know, that that's what I went through. So, you know, I, at no point did I, you know, go against anyone's orders or medical community. I followed the orders of the so-called professionals, even when I think subconsciously, even consciously, I knew I wasn't right. And if I could go back, I would do what I was doing. You know, I, I have, since I've gone through what I've gone through, I always give a player the benefit of the doubt. The player says they're hurt, fine, they're hurt. If a player's been hurt and they're, they're close to coming back and they don't have peace of mind, then I don't think they should come back. Now, like I said, I have a whole different perspective, a whole different set of experiences, and that's why I think that way. So I wish that I could have thought the way Kawhi's thinking. I wish I had, you know, somebody. I wish, you know, I wish it was somebody or I wish it was just me that could have protected me from me. Grant Hill's our guest on the Doug Gottlieb Show. Um, one of the, the outside of uh, congratulating you and ha helping you tell kind of your story, 
I love this Choices Matter campaign because it's it's obviously a huge problem in our country, how people manage their pain and, you know, with the issue with opioids. And it's something that you're going, you know, city to city, radio show to radio show, TV show to TV show, talking about this campaign. What is Choices Matter and, and, and how can you manage pain without the use of opioids? Yeah, no, I mean, it's great. It's sort of fitting considering what we were talking about. I mean, I, I had 10 surgeries during my career, going back to, to one in college. And so I was, you know, obviously, um, you know, was, was an expert, if you will, in this. And, and through the process of managing one's pain post-surgery, uh, I was exposed to opioids. And I never, I didn't have an issue in terms of, you know, developing an addiction, but I just didn't like the way my body felt. And, you know, as an athlete, you're so in tune with your body, what you put into your body. And so post-surgery, I, I, I just didn't like it. I inquired about it. I learned about it. Uh, and I learned about opioids. And I was, you know, very sort of scared and, and, and um, just not liking what, what opioids are. But it was really the only option you had post-surgery. You know, manage the pain, take pain meds, and, and, and you're putting this, this stuff in your body that's really not good for you. Uh, and so at the end of my career, I had a knee scope, and I was introduced to uh, a non-invasive, uh, non-opioid uh, pain management procedure. And basically, they numbed your leg for like four, you know, that lasts for almost four days. And so as, um, you know, the, the, the difficult times of your, of your uh, post-surgery or the few days right afterwards in terms of pain, you basically have a block on your leg. And once that block wears off after four days, you know, the pain has subsided. And so I didn't have to take any opioids. And, and to me, it was um, it was probably the most pleasant post-op experience that I had. Um, and so with the issue being a problem here in our country, with the overprescribing of opioids being an issue, I just really want to let people know as they're considering having surgery that there's another option. And they have rights. And they should inquire with their medical professional, their doctor, their surgeon, about um, the non-opioid post-surgery uh, pain management solution. And um, because look, so much of the opioid use has become has come from you know over overprescribing. And uh, and so I just feel like the Choices Matter campaign is important. We have an epidemic going on right now. This is a way to sort of uh, make some change. I think a lot of patients. They say that one out, one out of every three patients or uh, people who are considering surgery are, are worried about their post-surgery pain management because of opioids. And, uh, and so anyway, I was unaware of it until a doctor made me aware. And I just think every person who's considering surgery should, should at least have a discussion about it with, you know, with their surgery prior to, 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 to being operated on. Well, uh, Grant, I was I was a fan for a long time. Watched you win both your national championships. Got a chance to uh, be a colleague, and I, I hope you consider me a friend. I really appreciate you joining us. More than congratulating you to hear uh, this Choices Matter campaign because it does it, it is a big problem, and there is a way to avoid it. And I, I I really appreciate it. And again, congratulations on being elected to the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame. Hey, Doug, I appreciate you. Definitely are a friend, and uh, thanks for having me on. And invite me back. I'll come on anytime. Good, good enough, Grant Hill. Of course, called the national championship for Turner Sports, partial owner of the Atlanta Hawks, and, oh yeah, by the way, now a Hall of Famer.
Uh, Ray, thanks so much for taking time with us. There's a lot I want to get into. Um, there's some back and forth with you and some of the for- former Celtics. Uh, I want to ask your thoughts on playing with LeBron James, the winning championships with the Celtics and the Heat. But let me. There, there's been a lot of discussion up until I think the start of this year when you're finally like, look, I'm out. I, I don't. I don't want to come back. How, how? What was the closest you came to coming back and playing the past couple of years? Um, I wasn't that close. Uh, I never really officially talked to anybody and, you know, maybe visited a team. I know there was speculation on teams thinking that they wanted to bring me in. Uh, other than that, there was nothing real official. Um, I, I was actually, you know, wondering if somebody was going to, like, woo me to get off the couch. Other than that, it was like there was no, like, serious offers made. So I just kind of went about my business. Uh, let's 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 start more at the beginning. What I think many people miss uh, about you is you had a unique upbringing, right? Being a, being a military brat, um, you moved place to place to place, and I was always told kind of basketball was your refuge. In that, you know, look, it's it's hard when you're a kid. My kids have moved. It's hard in terms of establishing relationships. How how much of being a military brat, uh, you know, being born on an Air Force base and and moving around, how much of that made you drove you to basketball because it it brought a sense of normalcy well it wasn't just basketball because when you grow up on a military base you you uh you play everything like you have the ability to you know we all have a youth center that all the kids have the option to use um and through the youth center you sign up for basketball baseball soccer football and every sport you know when one the, the championship game ends you know, you crown a winner, and then the next sport may start two weeks a week, two weeks later. So, you know, you would be friended uh, or paired with your teams or your friends on certain teams, and sometimes you play against them in different sports. So, I had the availability to play everything, and that's what I always try to teach my kids to, especially when they're at young ages, to allow their muscles to develop so they can um, let ultimately let the sport choose them. So, you know, for me being in the military. You know, sports in general was my refuge because I knew that if I competed, you know, what kid is not like on the playground that wins? You know, so for me, I just went out there and you competed and you won. And, then, you know, I wasn't the kid that got picked last at anything. Um, Jim Calhoun is is somebody that I know helped uh, help form you as a basketball perennial all-star, a 10-time NBA all-star, and a surefire Hall of Famer. Um but he had a kind of – I always was marveled at the fact that kind of like I played for Eddie Sutton at Oklahoma State, and, and he would do some similar things where he wouldn't coach everybody the same. He understood how to get more out of certain players, and he was somebody who kind of privately challenged you, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, he privately did it, and he publicly did it. You know, nothing <laughs> embarrassing, but, um, you know, in front of the, the guys, it's one thing to – to learn how to coach everybody uh, singularly, but you got to know how to coach the group as a whole, and there's got to be accountability to everybody, and he did a great job of that. So we all knew that we were held to the same standard, but he didn't have to berate me or yell at me or you know do anything crazy because he knew how to motivate me. He knew I wanted to be great. He knew I wanted to do more, and so he would always know how to push my buttons in small little ways, and ultimately that is 
you know, great coaching for me because then the, the, my teammate, he had to yell out a little bit, and that got him, and they, you know, you just used to dealing with different personalities, different ways. But when we screwed up as a team, we all had to run. It wasn't like, you know, he gave me special considerations because I was the lead scorer of the team. Yeah, I, I think that's the the one thing I've always I found remarkable about your career and how it's contextualized now is I think people remember because the shot you hit in Miami, because of all the shots you hit in Boston, I do think that people and, and you tell me if I'm wrong, I do think people seem to forget that you were a dominant scorer in Milwaukee with a really good team in Seattle. I mean, you averaged what, twenty six and a half a game um, yeah. and and led the league in in scoring. When you when you were in Seattle, like be, because you 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 changed your roles later in your career to win championships and became more of a you know defender and shooter instead of you know an all around scorer. So, sometimes it, it has diminished a little bit the all around scoring game that you had. Is that is that a fair assumption? Nowadays we we look at front of us like you see you know the the kids now that talk about who the best players of all times are because you forget who uh did it back in the day who did it 10 years ago who did it 20 years ago and the conversation is always going to change and you know I, when i lived in seattle my last the last like 30 games a season i was averaging somewhere around 28 points a game and then i got hurt and then i was in and out a couple games and it went down to 26 so i was scoring in different ways and the kids, you know, I was you're, – you're playing on the West Coast. So when the game ends on the West Coast, people are deep into sleep. You know, my mom was on the East Coast, and she barely finished a lot of games, but she stayed up for most of them. So until I get to Boston, you know, I'm not on primetime TV. Boston, all of a sudden, I've become this well-known guy. For some people, they thought I just was drafted because it's like he just came out of nowhere. But I've been in the NBA up at this point for 12 years. And so, you know, people, for the most part, forget that. So once I got to Boston, I, in order for me to win, and, you know, myself, Paul, and Kevin, we knew that we had scored a bunch of points. We had made an all-star teams, and we were making great money. But in order for us to win, we had to restructure how we thought about the game of basketball, and we had to allow this help. So we had to win on the team's terms and not on the terms of us as an individual and think about, I, I got to score – I still got to score the most points. And that's the issue that you see with a lot of guys when they're forming these super teams. Are they willing to sacrifice and take less so they can win more? Okay, so, so take me back to that. That's, you know, it's, it's 2007, and uh, you, you came off an incredible season, right? You broke uh, Dennis Scott's um, 10-year-old record for three-point field goals made in a the season. Then you have, you have ankle surgery, and you get, you get traded to the Boston Celtics. They acquire you to go with Pierce and Kevin Garnett. Um, what, when you first walked in the locker room for training camp the next year, what was it like? You know, everybody was uh, excited. Uh, training camp started in Rome that, that year, which was probably one of the best things uh, for us. Um, I think that every team should go away from training camp. Uh, because it gets us out of our local market, the distractions. You know, if I stay home during training camp, I'm going to typically want to go home and see my family on a day that I have off or in between practices or whatever it may be. But we were in Rome. We couldn't do that. So we we had to learn each other quickly. So it was great that the NBA had us going to Rome to play against the Raptors in Rome. So we had 
you know, the time, the downtime, we were in the hotel, we were sitting outside, we couldn't sleep, we were uh, walking through the city, like we were doing so much that allowed us to kind of catch up on time lost so we can get on the same page. And, you know, so everybody knew that they had a particular skill set that could help a team. And uh, those days uh, away from the distraction and being in the, in, you know, what we come home to the media circus, we were great or in Rome and getting acquainted with each other. Doug Gottlieb show. The book is from outside my journey through life and the game that I love. The author is the great Ray Allen. He's kind enough to spend some time with us here on Fox Sports Radio. Um, you write about that trip and you talk about the fact that KG didn't like you dribbling, that KG's personality was a little bit prickly and that he always kind of wanted to one up people, even, you know, demanding that that he paid tabs because he tipped better. Um, what what do you remember distinctly about trying to understand his personality and how to fit in with that team? Well, it, it, I think early when we got together, um, you got to remember me being in the Seattle locker room and him being in Minnesota. We basically we're the alpha dog in the locker room, and we're the ones that you know speak during the huddles. We're the ones that you know make decisions or help the coach, and you know do so many different things. So. You're used to telling young people, you know, okay, this is what we need to do, and everybody, we need to come play tonight, and you know, everybody needs to bring their game. Like now, you're you're in the locker room with 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 three alpha dogs, and you're still used to your same protocols and how you were because you had young players. So now we had to figure out how to uh, adjust and get along with each other, where you respect each other's space. And it was that incident that I talk about in my book, where. I was dribbling and he didn't want me to dribble, you know, and it was almost like he was like telling me, you're not, you, you know, you, you can't dribble in the locker room. And I was like, well, damn dude, I'm, I've been, this is how I prepare. You do how you do. And I do, how I do. And what I learned quickly is the compromises that have to be made, um, in order to get to that, that same page level. You know, if you don't make those compromises, if I sit here, and we're just having this tiffin contest, then we're in for a long year, and it, it explodes. And we see that a lot around professional sports because egos aren't, aren't willing to go away. That's what was for us. We learned that it's, there's no ego. We have ego to help this team win, and, you know, we do less, and that's going to help the team more. And that, that was those small little lessons to teach people and even players in the league today. Like, sign up with a team and, 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 you know, to bring a new player in that's an all-star, like, be ready to sacrifice more than you ever did so that player can do more for you and help you win. But, but Ray, you, you, you know, like, that, like look, you as a, as a grown-up, as somebody who won championships, you, you're speaking the absolute truth. But the, the part to it that so many of these guys don't really understand is, like, they've always been the star, especially now how we create these AU teams where – you know, I've always been the guy. And if I'm not the guy, I go to a team where I am the guy. And if I go to college, I'm only going to go to college for a year to which I can be the guy. And then you go to an NBA team, and uh, though you're not ready to be the guy, you only want to go to an NBA team where you're – so it's – like it sounds – everyone says, like, I want to win, but are you willing to sacrifice, you know, like you did, like averaging 10 less points a game to win a championship – there are not a lot of people that are willing. They are like, yeah, I want to win a championship, but I, I, I want to still play my game. I want to still get my shots, get my touches, get my minutes. Like it sounds really good, but the use or or what Chris Paul's doing this year, that's the exception. The norm is guys think they can still be them 
only just add their superpowers to the superpowers of others. Yeah, and to your point, you know, you look at the transfers in college, you know, from schools because things didn't go their way. It's like the parents are letting their kids off the hook, and that's where it's starting because there's this entitlement that kids think that the coach didn't play me enough or I just didn't like the way things went, so I want to transfer. And that behavior starts with the parents at home, and then it grows and it continues all the way if that kid is fortunate enough to make it to the NBA. But the one thing I will say is, yeah, you're right, but if you're not willing to sacrifice, then you'll never win anything. That's what winning is all about. Winning is your ability to be a part of a team and win on the team's terms. Like, yeah, you, you'll make the all-star team, and yeah, you'll score points, but what, at the end of the day, do you, want, do you want to retire from the game of basketball and never have felt what it feels like to hoist that trophy up? Because every player that's played in, in any sport watches every championship game in every sport, and you admire, you envy, you 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 you're jealous of that team that's winning because you you know you want that feeling, but you have to get out of your own way. Like you have to use your talents for the good of the team and not for the good of your individual skill set. Like it's not about winning the championship. It's not about making the All Star team. It's not about making more money. It's about you doing your job for that particular team. And then when you win, then you have that discussion. But. While you're there, you have to figure out what you need to help that team out. And if you can do that, then you'll put yourself on course, on track to win. But for the most part, you'll, you'll see why guys ultimately don't win because they're not willing to sacrifice. Um, why did it end so poorly with you and Rondo and, and, and that crew? Um, well, Doug, I, I signed a contract uh, with another team. Uh, once I knew um, – you know, as I was having conversations with the organization and they weren't, you know, you know, moving in the direction that I had hoped that we would move in and to be successful, then it was time for me to move on. I knew it. And, um, you know, I, I had a conversation, you know, with, uh, with Danny Ainge, and I said, you know, there's certain things that, you know, we need to improve on, you know, around our offense, you know, specifically. And, uh, you know, he was like, I, I – I, I agree with you. I wish I could disagree with you, but I agree with you, and I'll take it, you know, back to the coach and see what he says. And then what came back was I need, just like I just said, and it worked against me, he said, you need to do what we need you to do as a team. If you want to be a part of this, if not, then you need to move on. So that was my, those were my marching papers because at the end of the day, if you're not going to, I want to win too, but I see the things that we need to improve on. And if we're not, if you're not going to address those, so we can prove on them, then you know you've you've made my decision for me. Right, because because the way in which it's it's painted, it's painted that you chose to leave a championship team. But but the truth is that you guys were aging. They had they had started to bring you off the bench. They had changed your role, and um and and so so it's it's not like you guys had just come off a championship and you decide to leave and go to the Heat. There was a lot of other kind of. Um, ancillary issues that went with the decision more so than just, I want to leave this team and I'll go to a competitive competing team. Fair. Doug, I'm, I'm, I'm new England through and through, you know, I still live in Connecticut. You know, that was my home. I didn't want to go anywhere. And I think that played against me. So when it came time to negotiate contract, I was the guy that they left the least amount for. So by the time I get ready to go uh, or to negotiate, 
you know, it, there's there's little to no room, uh, wiggle room whatsoever. So once, you know, based on all the conversations about the future of the team and then contractually, you the writing is on the wall. Okay, so my tenure is up as a Boston Celtic. It's time for me to move on. So once I move on, now I have to figure out where I'm moving on to. That's the, how the process worked. So my choices were the Clippers, the Miami Heat, Minnesota Timberwolves, and the Memphis Grizzlies. Those were the four teams that were interested in my services. In that same breath, the Clippers then just signed Jamal Crawford. So then I had I was down to three, and this is how fast free agency works. On June 1st, teams start contacting you and telling you, hey, we'd love to have you come in and visit. We'd love to have you on our team, and that's what we can do. Now, by June, July 3rd, you can start signing contracts. So as guys are signing contracts, I got three teams now that are telling me they're interested in me that I have to figure out, you know, what's going to be the best situation for me. So that's how you ultimately end up deciding because free agent happens so fast. And once ties were basically severed between team that I was hoping that I was going to stay with, then you figure what's the best option moving forward. So you play with Miami Heat, with Miami Heat, and with LeBron James. What was what's the give, give me the difference in locker room tone, in leadership style, in you know the the composition, the big three. How what how was it in Miami as opposed to how it was in Boston? Well, I mean, you, you see the same similarities and you know routines and, and habits, guys getting in and, and doing what they need to do, and the consistencies. Um, the, the as old as we were in Boston, we had a lot more in the roster. Uh, so um, the, I think I think it was tougher for Spolstra in um, in Miami because you got Mike Miller. Like how do you decide to play out of all those guys? You know, with that, you know, at some point. Uh, throughout the last couple of years. Um, so you see those are all the same similarities between, you know, all the, you know, both teams that I've played on. And, uh, you know, same thing, just small little uh, philosophical differences, defensively, different words, but, you know, still the same stuff. Uh, the the shot you hit against the Spurs, I mean, like, again, like, there's a lot of things you accomplished. I mean, you, you won a gold medal, you know. You won two NBA championships with, you know, one with the Boston Celtics, one of the two most iconic franchises in the sport. But you have one of arguably the top ten moments maybe in the history of the NBA. Um, I know you practiced that shot probably 10,000 times and that you were somebody who people emulate in that you, you would lay on the floor and get up and run back to the three-point line. You knew exactly where you are supposed to be. But what do you what are what are your recollections of that shot, Game Six, NBA Finals? Uh, my recollection is really just I thank God that it, you know I'm on the right side of uh, this whole conversation as opposed to we say or talk about how I didn't make it and you know my life has been hell since then and I can't go anywhere, my kids can't go anywhere. I'm glad I'm not having that conversation, of course. Um, but what I do think about is the reason that I'm, we're not having that conversation is because I was afraid of that. You know, my whole career, you know, once I started playing deep in the playoffs, I was so, like, afraid of being the guy that let his team down and, and the guy that people are talking about, 
you know, the reason why the team lost, you know, turning the ball over, missing a free throw. So I would go into the gym, you know, and just kind of do everything possible to, to get my body prepared. Like I was obsessive, you know, when it came to the lift in my legs. I need to have the lift in my legs at any given time. I need to make sure that I push my body into different places, you know, so – I can rely on it. You know, the fourth quarter is when it's winning time. And, like, I put myself up against any anybody in the fourth quarter because I knew that my body was going to stand up. You know, even when everybody else was getting tired, the game wore on, there, the fatigue was setting in. But I was training myself for those fourth quarter moments. All the running I've done, you know, whenever I traveled throughout the year, I would, you know, leave the hotel, go to the health club or run in the cities when I got in. I would bring my bike with me at times, and I would ride through the city. Like, I always believed I was doing things that other people weren't doing because when that time came in the fourth quarter, I was going to be able to stand up and, and, and endure longer than everybody else was going to be able to. Uh, last thing, um, Michael or LeBron? You obviously played against Michael. You played with LeBron. And I know they're different. And I know it's an, it's an, impossi- it's, it's an impossible comparison to those of us who, who know and love ball because they're two completely different players. But it's still the, the, the debate that maybe only you can settle, Michael or LeBron, pick one. Yeah, yeah, because I, I certainly have spanned the, uh, the decades uh, and, and played against both of them. Um, what, what I will say is <clears throat> the generations, you know, I said this a little bit earlier, like, you know, we're nostalgic about the people that helped grow us up. And, you know, now the kids are growing up and, they, you know, there's questions like how good was Michael Jordan? Like, you know, 15 years ago that was never a question because these people that were growing up understood it. They seen him real time. You know, they seen him in games. It wasn't just highlights. Everybody picked out the good stuff. But you could see highlights in this stuff all the time. Uh, LeBron is, he'll go down as, you know, the most dominant player in his generation. But what I've seen, you know, eye to eye, face value, you know, LeBron is an incredible player to stop. He's dominant. But what I've seen in MJ was MJ did not have a weakness at all. Like all the players that played against him, we tried to do whatever we can. The Knicks tried to beat him up. Uh, you try to keep the ball out of his hands a lot of times, but whenever he got it, it was incredible what things he could do with it. And, you know, I, you know, me personally, you know, I, I say MJ is, is the best of all time. Um, and, you know, the game has changed. It's not about statistics. Um, it's just about the, 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 when you look at a player and what they are capable of doing on the floor, you know, the, the, from the three-point line to mid-range to post-up, to the free throws, to the defensive end, like you just you kind of throw all that into play, and you know I, I think you know MJ was hands down uh, leaps above everybody else in the league. Ray Allen, the new book is My Journey Through Life and the Game That I Love. It's available on Amazon. One of the all-time greats, won two NBA championships, a gold medal, and a surefire Hall of Famer. Ray, I'm I'm so happy that you found happiness in retirement, and that you're letting other people read about your your basketball life and your journey. Doug, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Next week, I think you'll really, really enjoy the content as we dig in on the NBA playoffs, we dig in on the NBA draft, and a couple of great things lined up for you. Thanks for listening to All Ball. Infinity. 
Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. It's bracket season, and you can pre-register now for Fox Sports Radio's Bracket Challenge at foxsportsradio.com. Get details, rules, and pre-register so you can easily create your winning bracket when it's live on March 17th. Once you fill out your bracket, you're entered for a chance to win the ultimate college sports trip for you and a friend, including travel and stays at any Graduate Hotels location. It's sponsored by Tractor Supply and Graduate Hotels, where college fans stay. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.